This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Hired.com is offering a new freelancing and contracting offering. They have multiple companies that will provide you with contract opportunities. They cover all the tracking, reporting, and billing for you. They handle all the collections and pre-fund your paycheck. They offer legal, accounting, and tax support. And they'll give you $1,000 when you've been on a contract for 90 days. But with this link, they'll double it to $2,000 instead. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Freelancer Show. This week's episode of The Freelancer Show is brought to you by Earth Class Mail. Earth Class Mail moves your stale mail into the cloud, giving you instant access 24-7 and integrates with the tools and services you use every day. It's crazy that we've moved everything we do for the business over to the digital world, but still need to pick up, sort, and manage physical mail. With Earth Class Mail, you can get all of your mail scanned and accessible online 24-7. You can search your mail, send invoices over to your accounting software, sync important documents into cloud storage, deposit checks, and really just make running your business a whole lot easier. You also get real professional address to share publicly with customers, business partners, and investors. And you'll never need to worry about someone showing up at your door if you run your business from home. Now, I've checked out Earth Class Mail, and I think it's a brilliant solution that's perfect for businesses and independent entrepreneurs of all types. Visit freelancershow.com slash mail, and you'll get your first month of service free when you sign up. That's freelancershow.com slash mail. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 213 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Jonathan Stark. Hello. Philip Morgan. Howdy. Ruben Lerner. Hey, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Quick shout out. Go check out all the conferences I'm putting on through the end of the year at allremoteconfs.com. We also have a special guest this week, and that's Gary Herman. Hi, everybody. Now, Gary sent me an email. Let's see. When was this? It was May 14th is when I got it. And uh, he basically said, and I'm just going to read some of this. He says, as a small freelance firm, we are constantly up against recurring misconception, which is annoying, and I'd love to hear your staff discuss in more detail, as I think it would help many. We were just in a meeting yesterday in which a client suggested again that he had worked for major Silicon Valley companies and that what we're doing as web and mobile engineers is nothing more than a commodity service. They asked us to act as software architects, but leave the development up to less costly labor outside the United States. It blows my mind that educated, well-vetted executives think that what we do is so simple. Their comment was, well, it's not like the old days when we were building sophisticated and complex applications. It's just a web app or a mobile app. The amount of energy we put into training ourselves and following the ever-growing list of trends and standards is huge, and we've been doing it for over 10 years. So how does one deal with this stuff? It's a very frustrating debate to get into and somewhat demeaning. And then he said nice things about the freelancer show. So, so I'm. That's that's why he's on. <laughs> so, so yeah. I mean, I've run into this a little bit, where I had kind of specialized on Ruby on Rails for a while, and yeah, somebody would go take a Ruby on Rails course online, and then I'd be bidding 150 bucks an hour, or I would be giving them a straight up value based bid or a direct bid on their work. And somebody would come in and say, oh, I can write a Ruby script in five minutes for $3 and, you know, that. Or I would have clients come to me and basically say, so why should I hire you? After we had gone through the whole process, right, of going through what they needed and figuring out what it would take, they go, well, why should I pay you when I can pay somebody just like you one-tenth of what I paid you or what I would pay you if I hire them out of India? Is that kind of where you're looking here or... Yeah, I think, uh, well, for us, you know, we see this commonly come up in, in some of our projects where it feels like the client may not be um, that 
educated in our space. And and obviously our space, as, as you know, is, is, is fairly complex, especially today involves so many different technologies that tie in together. So when a client comes to us and they're not educated in our space and they're looking towards price, it's very hard to explain to them in one conversation without probably boring them a bit in, in how much it takes to get that technology expertise up to par and deliver a quality product. So when we're finding ourselves bidding against other people and, you know, whatever it is, I mean, we typically specialize in PHP oriented applications. So it's WordPress or Magento or custom built apps using Laravel or AngularJS. You know, obviously, they're, they're not each developer is made the same. So uh, we, we find that uh, commonly being a, a position we run into that very hard to, to get past. I have about a million things to say about this. (laughs) Chuck, could you do me a favor and read the line from the email where the client made a suggestion about what Gary should be doing? That they're a commodity service? No, maybe. Act as software architects, but leave the development effort up to... That's the one. That's actually good advice, in my opinion. You should work as software architects and leave the development to cheaper labor, because that's the tricky part. Typically, I mean, I don't know you and I don't know your work. Sure. We've just, just met, but that's the advice I give all software developers is to move to higher ground because the easy stuff is cheap. And I, I, I'm a software developer, so I know when I say easy, nothing's easy. But there are things that you don't need top tier developers for, and there are things you do need top tier developers for. And coding is not one of those things. Planning is more like it. And I, and I would agree with that, except for the fact that our team and myself, uh, we're engineers at heart. So for us, it's sort of like, uh, yeah, it, it basically at that point becomes a business and takes away sort of the challenging art form that we're trying to craft and develop great code for our clients. I guess we also feel that when we develop a, a software roadmap or we look at the architecture, uh, which involves everything from the ground up, you know, it's kind of your baby at that point. So you want to be involved in those steps, moving things forward to make sure the client's getting what they paid for. And as you're developing, you often see little things that need to be talked about or resolved that we worry that a lower level tech or an outsource firm may not get to. And the resulting product won't be um, as perfect as we hope we would make it. I have a few thoughts and then Jonathan can tell me that I'm wrong. Okay. But, uh, you know, I, I tend to agree with the sentiment that the real value is in the, the planning and the architecture and things like that, where you're basically coming up with the solution and the implementation is less valuable, though mm-hmm. necessary. The flip side of that is is that I have also seen where development firms and engineering firms tend to get the develop or some tend to be able to get that implementation right, and other firms tend to flail about a bit and tend to write buggier software. And so I, I can also see that as an argument for, hey, look, we, we do the implementation, we get it done correctly, we get it done quickly, and we get it done as agreed. I mean, no argument there. Like, that's all true. The question is, what does the client value? You know, you guys are 100% on the money that a, a seasoned developer is going to write way better code, less technical debt, all that faster to market, less buggy, yada, 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 yada. The question is, does the customer value that? I don't think, I mean, no, Gary. Hang on. Did, Can I ask a question about does the customer value that? Are we talking about whether or not it's actually valuable f- for the customer or are we talking about whether or not the customer actually recognizes the value of it? The latter. Whether the latter is the only that one that matters. matters. Yeah, the first one doesn't matter. Okay, what were you saying? Look, I, yeah, like all that stuff's true and we all get that, but 
you know, it, it, it kind of comes back to that. It doesn't matter to the client as much. So in other words, the kind of buggy deck technical debt, a little bit slower code from India, let's just say, is good enough for their needs. So, I mean, and it might turn out that they regret that decision. And then the next time around, the perception of the value of hiring top tier hands to actually implement the code will be completely different. But to spend time in a meeting trying to persuade them that that's, that they're going to regret the decision is a really tough sell. And it's, in my opinion, easier to find people who've already been burned and just let this, let, you know, the current client who's not mature or experienced in these kinds of projects or is mature and doesn't care to take what I think is actually good advice, which is to go after the architecture part, which is much lower risk, much higher profit. Uh, it's lower revenue than the implementation, but it's very high profit. And just, you know, take that for what it is, what it is, warn them that you're afraid that external implementation is not going to be as good. But shepherd them along through the process. You could perhaps manage the external team all the way through. You could throughout the process be saying, see, I told you so, you know, this was going to be kind of rough, but that's what you decided. So let's finish this and we can, you know, next project we can revisit. But trying to convince someone that's so funny you're saying this because like I, I had this guy call me, I guess it was like two months ago with an emergency and their system had to go live and it wasn't scaling the right way. So I came in and helped them debug things for, for a bit for like half a day or so on an emergency basis and things sort of got up and running. And then they turn around and they, and I was thinking they were going to ask me when they called, they were going to ask me to help with the development, but that wasn't it at all. It was exactly what Jonathan said. Like they want to stick with their low cost developer, but they want as we all called it adult supervision. The guy is very bright, but inexperienced. And so I'm sure, and really, 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 I'm not disparaging people in India here because I know some amazing uh, developers there, but basically I'm sure what I'm getting paid for my you know, value-based pricing per month to be an architect and overall have a few meetings with them is what this guy is getting paid for the whole month. It's a win for the company. It's a win for me. And it's even a win for this developer who's now going to get to learn some, you know, some techniques from someone more experienced than he is. You know, I, I just want to jump in here and say that that Gary's question brings out I think a larger point which is that the the landscape really has changed for software you know the ability to produce competent or even great code has diffused and so people here in the US who just assume that a better job can't be done somewhere else are I think going to be increasingly a proven wrong and Gary, this is not about you and your team at all. This is just like a, an observation about the larger, sure. you know, landscape of software. It's changing, and the ability to produce really good code is going to be something you can source from other places. I think all of us who are trying to sell services to clients need to realize that the advantage of being in the U.S. is more and more not an advantage. You know. I I would agree with. I, I do think there's some value in that. I think it brings up a couple of things. One is, you know, sometimes the clients turn to us to bring in that team, so we obviously don't work with those teams on a regular basis. So we have no vetted team standing by to come in that are that are outsourced. And on the the other side of it, I think it's just yeah, it is a changing landscape. And for us, I guess we feel a little bit more like that chef in the kitchen that's trying to make that perfect dish that wants to be cooking it and making sure the chicken's seared properly and the rice is cooked perfectly and the meal comes out great. And for us, we we feel like that cooking process is is a part of like the passion and sort of the love we bring of the art form to it that comes out in the product. And so. Uh, 
my, I guess my feeling in general is like, how do we, you know, either we have to learn to give up that love for things or instill that in other people, but it's not that passion and that burning fire exists in every engineer that's out there. Oh man, I've got, there's so many, I, I really don't want this to turn into like beating up on Gary because <laughs> this is super common, but you just use a whole bunch of red flag words. Yeah. Beat me up art. This is not art. <laughs> this is business. And I, believe me, I, I get the craft thing, but I yep. save that for my own code. Like I don't code for money anymore because of this, okay. but I still code yep. and I make 10 times more money. So it's like, you know, if you want to have, there's this, I was talking about this to somebody the other day and I was like, there's this spectrum between being a craftsman and being an entrepreneur or a business person. And one of the really painful lessons that I, you know, Maybe I just gave in or gave up or something. But if you're having fun on the job as a developer, you're almost always learning something new because that's what developers love. Yep. And that is ex education's expensive. And if you're charging by the hour, the customer is paying for it, paying for your education. The really profitable stuff is the really boring stuff because you have it nailed. It's down. It takes you two seconds. And if you're not billing by the hour and you're billing based on the value or some other non-time related thing, the profits are astronomical compared to, you know, getting paid by the hour to like lovingly craft a, you know, a, you know, code that you want to print out on the wall because it's so elegant and beautiful. Like I totally get that. Like I love that too. I totally love that. But I've just been beaten down to the point where I'm forced to, to admit the fact that clients don't care at all. And to try and have that conversation turns into this thing of like, you're going to regret it. That's things going to be buggy. And it never really comes back to bite them that bad. So I'm kind of like, all right, well, where is the high value thing? And I think it's awesome that, that your customer was aware of the thing that they really wanted you to do. Like they recognize that you're an authority. They recognize that you're an expert and they sure. want you to be the, the architect because that's the expert role and the sort of execution, you know, that can be given to junior developers. Hey, Jonathan, you mentioned getting beaten down by this and, and kind of switching your tactics. I mean, was that something that you just kind of uh, easily went the way with or did you kind of fight that along the way to, to get to that point? Uh, you know, it's a maturation process, I suppose. I fought it at first. I mean, I've gone toe-to-toe -to -toe with people about whether or not to include jQuery in a website. <laughs> you know, it's just not a useful use of my time. And honestly, I'm happier now. And so are the clients. I mean, I have this exact conversation with people every single day, you know, developers every single day. Sure. And especially when you have employees, it's a huge, it's kind of a sock in the mouth because you, you're like, well, my, my whole, you know, what about my team morale? I mean, there's so many questions. How would I shift things around to deal with this? Maybe I'll just reject this or maybe, maybe Stark doesn't know what he's talking about or maybe Stark gave up. And if he hadn't given up, then things would have worked out. But it, all the trend, all the, everything's going in this direction. Like Philip was saying, it's like amazing code is now easy to get. Like include a gem, include a bunch of gems, use jQuery, use a bunch of jQuery plugins, use a bunch of WordPress plugins. Like the development was so, I mean, I don't know how long, you, how long you've been doing it, but I've been maybe for 15 years mm -hmm. and you just web stuff. And before that, I would like learn basic when I was a little kid. And it's so different now. Now it's much more like assembling Lego blocks that were written by like God level coders and less, you know, or cut and paste from stack overflow, whatever. And it's a lot less critical, I think, to have like really expensive resources on implementation. I'll stand behind that. I think that's fair to say that that's the case. Jonathan, let me, let me ask you this then. So like, 
I totally get what you're saying in terms of there's more profit, there's a lot of demand for doing more architectural high-level stuff. But you know, Gary, ha- I mean, Gary, if I understand correctly, like you've got a team, you've got a company there. I mean, jo- how many people work at your company now? Ten. Ten. So, yep. Jonathan, are you basically saying, Gary, I want you to turn all your people into architects? I mean, is is that a reasonable thing to expect? It depends on their skills, uh, but yeah, maybe. I mean, it would it would probably be hard to find that much architect work. So you probably have to do a combination of like I could imagine a thing where a really top tier lead dev from Gary's shop approved all pull requests from an outsourced team, uh, offshore team, so that everything went through a quality assurance process where you know other people are writing the code, but then Gary's guy or gal reviews it before pulling it into the main into the master branch or whatever. Sure, so there's more of like a hybrid a, approach. Yeah, like a like a pair programming thing, or you could also perhaps sell services to train those out. You know, use those people to do training for you know outsourced teams that wanted to get better. Who knows? I mean, there are a million ways you can repurpose a smart developer other than typing semicolons. I think it's interesting too because <laughs> what you're talking about there, Jonathan, is that you're es- essentially making some of the same guarantees that you would make if your own folks actually wrote the code. It's just that. You know, the company may be saving some money or some effort or, you know, in some other way, you know, that affects their bottom line. They're saving some money and getting the work done. And, yeah, it may not be top-notch work, but you can at least guarantee that it is reasonably good work. Yeah, I think that's that's more or less what I'm saying. But there's value there, too, right? Because then you have that experienced eye on the code, even if you don't have the experienced hands writing the code. So, close. There may be value there if the customer perceives that as valuable. We all know it's valuable, or we all know that it will that it will be beneficial, it will result in better code that's less buggy and more extensible. But that might not be valuable to the customer, in which case they won't pay for it. So if you do find a customer that kind of wants a hybrid approach, then it'd be a cool service to offer. So I was just trying to come up with some kind of way to repurpose the uh, hands-on-deck in a way that... You know, made them happy, made customers happy, created something that probably would be valued by some customers, but still sort of made them feel like they weren't paying top dollar for every little, you know, refactor. Can I ask another question related to this perception of value? How much of this work then is actually setting up the systems to provide the service? And how much of this work is training your customer through your sales process to value the work that you want to provide them? You can't do the second. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. But I, I want to speak to the first. I, I think a lot of it is, uh, let me just say this. I, I've worked with a number of development shops and the uh, revenue per employee numbers of people who have someone here in the U.S. managing a remote team tend to be a lot uh, more attractive for the owner of the firm than any other type of configuration I've seen. So it suggests that if you can figure out how to solve that problem of communicating well with the remote team and managing them, and when I say remote, I I mean, I really mean a team that charges less because they live in a cheaper part of the world. So I just want to throw that out there, but also want to throw out the fact that, well, actually, I want to ask all of you, do any of you have experience with the fine art market? Do you know anything about how that works? My my wife's a curator, but like besides knowing that a lot of artists are crazy, uh, not too much. <laughs> okay. 
I just want to say this. This is going to sound terrible. It's going to sound like I'm beating up on Gary because <laughs> he used the word art. If you use the word art to describe your code, you are saying that you want to be in a, in a in a different market than you really are. You want to be in the art market. And the rules of the art market are quite different <laughs> than the rules of, I think, the market that you're in if you're selling software development services. So oh, I've got it way better than my wife. You're 100% right on that. <laughs> I mean, how how value is assigned in the art market is quite different. Then what I'm saying is it's quite different than how it is in the uh, the world of software development. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think that I, I would say it's, you know, for us, it's a more of a uh, let's use the word craft. But it is, you know, it is what drives our team. It's what drives me. I mean, I, I do spend all my time as the, the CEO of the company going in and, and running the show and working with clients and, and training them and helping my team uh, from a software engineering architecture approach uh, look at problems differently. But I, I spend most of my nights researching other tools. I listen to uh, a lot of podcasts. I, I spend a lot of time going through courses um, online and, and just keeping myself up to date with the latest techniques so that I can advise my clients properly and give them not cutting edge, bleeding edge technology, but the best solution for the job. And I think that one of the reasons that we're able to do that is because we're constantly in the mix with all these clients, seeing all these different opportunities come up where we have to solve different problems. I guess one of my fears in that is as we kind of escalate out of that and start using offshore teams or, or looking at other teams that might be a little less expensive to help fill in some of the gaps, you know, my fear is we'll, we'll lose some of that insight that we get now from being at that level and getting our hands dirty per se. I hear you on that. I would say the flip side is if you can solve that problem, like that's an expensive problem. And if you can solve that, I think you can capture a lot of value. Jonathan, to some degree, like I've definitely had the experience of doing development and working with clients and they knew they were paying more and they knew that they could get equal quality from someone else. And they still wanted to work with me or someone on my team because there is still something intangible and worthwhile and giving them value in having strong relation, a strong relationship, a strong understanding of their product, of their service, of their market. Is there something to be said for that? I mean, is, is that a, a, a positioning, you know, we are on your wavelength and easy to get along with that they could not necessarily easily get from uh, offshore developers? Oh, I yeah, absolutely. That's, yeah. that's a potential market segment. Yeah, but and it's about what's it worth. Yeah, that, that's it's unknown. But mm -hmm. I mean, at least theoretically, that's a potential market segment you could try to target and identify. And one that's similar to that is we'll come in and rescue the project that your offshore budget <laughs> team screwed up. But that's never fun, right? I mean, you're going in and rescuing a project. We do that all the time. It tends to be 50% of our work probably, but it's not a fun exercise because for us, we're dealing with a client that has a lack of budget at that point. Um, they've got relatively bad code. Their timelines shrunk and they have emergency uh, needs, so we're under a lot more pressure. And we always end up in this position where we start feeling bad for the client and end up doing additional work that we're not getting paid for because we, we don't know how to say And we get in this savior mode. Uh, we want to be the hero in the process, and I think that it ends up hurting us. And I just want to add a caveat is that we tend to be pretty busy right now. I mean, we're not, we're not in a position where this commoditization is really starting to affect us now. I mean, we tend to get a lot of clients that have complex problems and need teams that have a, a little bit of a higher skill set to solve those problems. But what I'm starting to see is more and more clients coming to the table with, with these projects that used to be somewhat more complicated, and as you said before, are basically just having an expertise in putting those Lego blocks together, which I also think has a scale. I mean, there's some people that can just go and download a whole bunch of WordPress plugins and produce a site. There's other people that can download plugins that work really well together and have a good lay of the land and build a great solution. So yeah, I guess my, my question would be, um, 
I mean, have you, have any of you guys actually gone down the road of actually bringing in a vetted team from overseas? Because a lot of our clients that do come to the table don't necessarily have a team overseas or have anyone else they can use. So they're coming to us to solve the full problem, not just the software architecture. Now we could solve the software architecture, but it kind of makes sense that we would probably start to try and vet some other teams. I guess my fear in that circle is now we become responsible for those teams' work and we don't have vetted teams available that we know of right now. Yeah, I do this all the time, but the approach I take because of the concern that you just raised is to make the introduction. Okay. I, I don't get in the middle and mark up their invoices or anything like that. I say, in, in fact, I'll charge for the service to find them some outside teams or if they want to hire internally to vet their internal, you know, candidates for an internal job, help them write job descriptions, all of that. But I have experimented with getting in the middle and kind of having a virtual agency and it's a nightmare for the exact reasons that you pointed out. Uh, you don't have as much control as you need, basically, and it makes it impossible to, you know, guarantee any kind of customer satisfaction. So I'll usually just say, all right, you know, I've got these three candidates. I've worked with them many times on other projects or for whatever reason, I think these people are worth looking into. Here's the contact information. You can tell them you got uh, their name from me, but it's up to you how you want to move forward. If they send you a proposal and you want me to review it, I'm happy to do that. But I'm definitely not in the middle of that relationship. And how successful have those been for you, Jonathan? Have you, when you make those introductions, how many times does it succeed versus fail? It's never failed. I I can't think of a time it's failed. Okay. And I've had I can think of one example where I was uh, advising the client for three years. At which point I had a kid and had to stop traveling. And so I, I basically had to fire the client, which was unfortunate because it was a great client. And that was two years ago because my daughter's two, two and a half. So one of the companies that I introduced them to is still working for them. So that'd be five, six years now. Wow, that's great. Yeah, that is So great. that's just one example. There are, there are others, but that's probably the most dramatic one. I actually have a previous client whose entire business model is, is a matchmaker between U.S. companies and overseas teams. And, you know, from talking with him, I know that the, the success or failure is often based on like cultural fit, as it so often is, and, you know, skill set fit. Again, that's basically his business is, is finding the right fit. But of course, once he's found that, he's like a matchmaker. He just hands it off, just like Jonathan talks about doing. I have other clients, uh, development shops, who if they have an overseas team, it's a very close relationship. And there's a lot of communication. It's not something where they're just like throwing work over the wall and then it comes back perfect and ready to ship. Yeah. And I just wonder if this is a sign that, you know, at a certain level of software development, if in the U.S., this is reaching a point where you're going to have to be OK with going away from the keyboard and moving into that other level of software architecture. And I, I mean, I, I think I heard on a show before there's someone explained that. Now, if you're really going to be an entrepreneur, you got to resist the pull of that keyboard. But it's it's a hard thing to do. I mean, most of us got into this because of solving problems is what drives us. So moving up to that other level where you don't get into that day to day, you know, development um, paradigm is l somewhat less rewarding. I know. I mean, okay. everybody's jumping on. <laughs> Apple makes makes one computer. They build one computer. I mean, they design everything in the U.S., but they just build one computer here, and it's their crappiest computer. I mean, that's, of course, a sweeping, provocative way to put it. But I wonder if that doesn't kind of point the way to where things are headed. You also said something that I wanted to call out, which is that 
everybody there got into it because they love solving problems, but that doesn't necessarily mean keyboard. So in the, in the flip side of it is I love coding, right? Like I still do it. You can still do it all the time for, you can do it for internal systems. You could build uh, tools for yourselves to, to allow you to execute the stuff that you do for your clients uh, much more quickly. In fact, that's another way that you could repurpose internal employees instead of working on implementation of client work, they could be building systems to drastically increase your efficiency with perhaps writing proposals uh, or submitting proposals, responding to RFPs, project management. Uh, there's a, a bunch of things they could do to drastically lower your costs. Like if this code is so valuable, right? Like we're all telling everybody this code's so valuable. You know, you could have them create some of that valuable code for your business sure. and use it to decrease your costs. As long as you're not billing by the hour, then that is money straight in your pocket. I have one more thing that I've kind of been thinking in, in this whole discussion, and it goes back to the idea that we've been talking about with the company or with the client's perceived value. Uh, some clients really do want an onshore team. They want somebody who's here in the U.S. that they can reach out and touch, or at least they know that you know they're within a couple hours on the time zone, and they value that work that's done by people in the U.S. because they perceive that it has... Uh, fewer bugs and, and higher value. Is there a way to connect with those clients? And at what point do you start going, okay, well, these clients are becoming rarer and rarer, so I do need to move into this other space where that commodity is offshore or outsourced to less expensive producers? I, I agree completely that that's potentially a viable market segment. It's just a, it's a difficult one to nail down. I mean, Jonathan's uh, email list or his email software sent me an email about this today. It's like, is that characteristic visible from the outside or yeah. do you have to get into a sales conversation with a client before that becomes apparent? Yeah, I was kind of going through that same thought process in my head and I don't know. I can't think of a way to identify those companies. I mean, you can be clear in your messaging. We are here for those people that don't trust an offshore team <laughs> or think that an offshore team is going to screw it up. We mitigate risk because our developers are here. Like that's an easy message to articulate in your marketing. That's not the problem. The problem is how do you get it in front of people who have that fear or that problem? And I would say you're right. I mean, I think a large amount of our clients currently are exactly that. They're clients that are looking for onshore teams that want a team that they can meet with on a regular basis, that want to be close to us, and that highly value sort of what we can bring to the table in some ways. I mean, probably the value is more uh, in the fact that we're close and that, and that we're somewhat experienced. But And, and for us, we, we still do get those clients, but it tends to be those, those are getting to be the bigger, the larger clients and, and the smaller client, larger clients and startups, I should say. The smaller clients that sit in between are, are, are really starting to go away, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I think it, there's obviously value in them accomplishing their goals at a cheaper price, but that's currently where we sit on that. And I think, I think generally what you guys are saying is, and I think uh, you know, I'd love to hear your feedback on it, but is that we are entering into this world of, of commoditization and that that's affecting everybody along the gamut. It's not just WordPress developers anymore. It's it's the entire spectrum. Well, and the people that I know that are succeeding at WordPress development in particular have specialized one way or another so that it's not necessarily about the code. It's about the solution and it's about their particular way of solving it. And so when they get hired and they get paid a high fee, the high fee is for their expertise and not for them actually writing the code, even though that's part of what they've been doing. 
Sure. And I would say our team's done the same thing. We've started to become much more specialized in things like Angular JS, and then we specialize further in that to start using the Ionic framework, which gives us the ability to build hybrid applications and start to become specialist in, in that as well, and kind of moving away from these more commoditized services which do seem to be in demand. But again, it's we're dealing with clients that I think at any level, our clients just come to the table with that approach of, you know, what makes you guys different and why, you know, why would I work with you over this guy? And, you know, it doesn't have to be India. I mean, it could be the Ukraine or it could be in Oklahoma. And uh, it, it is becoming harder and harder to explain that difference without, you know, getting into a specialty area. I also want to push back on, you know, you said you specialized further into Angular and Ionic. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, specializing on technology is something that as those skill sets become more dispersed, you're going to face the same problem there. Now oh, it's yeah. PHP systems with Angular. Now it's PHP systems with Angular and Ionic, uh, or PHP systems with Angular and React Native, you know, or whatever it is, because ultimately, again, they don't care if you use Ionic, they just want a mobile app. And so if you specialize in solving a particular problem for a particular niche, then your expertise become what they hire you for. The, similar to the architecture discussion that we've been having earlier, instead of, oh, you have these other technical skills that we may or may not actually value over the fact that we have a solution that may or may not be written in them. Yeah, yeah. I would say, Charles, I mean, what I've been doing, I mean, when, when I say I specialize in AngularJS and we're, we're moving towards Ionic, a, a lot of that push was because our clients were looking for mobile applications and we were trying to find a way to deliver mobile applications at a lower cost, and Ionic and Angular, were, it was a direction we were heading in sort of in any case. And the result of that was that we could still compete on that circuit and produce some, some great solutions for them without the native approach, which tends to be a little bit more expensive. So the tricky part with a horizontal specialization like Angular is that if that's what you're using in your marketing, it's kind of like a, a carpenter marketing himself as like a table saw expert. Yeah. It assumes that the client knows they need some table sawing done. And again, it's a tough market to specialize in because how do you reach people proactively who you know need Angular? Well, or who know they need Angular. Right. And so the if problem you're... is there is that if they know they need Angular, if they know enough to know that they need Angular, then they know enough to actually not need you, kind of. Right, right. And like so, they're, they're halfway there anyway. Right. So if you're moving in circles where it's like the music industry or the, you know, dentists or whatever, where people are going to go to a seminar or a conference and they're going to say, oh, have you seen my mobile app? Oh, these great guys made it for me. You know, they're not talking about Angular or Ionic at that point. They're talking about, I have a mobile app and it's making my business better. Check it out. Right. And then, and then Gary, you just happen to use Angular because it allows right. you to deliver solutions very quickly and cheaply that are valued by your customer. Like the customer doesn't care if you use a table saw or a circular saw or whatever. They're sure. like, oh man, check out this table. <laughs> you mentioned earlier that you, you know, at night you spend time researching all different things. And, and two things I wanted to loop back to on that. One is that uh, I do the same thing for the exact same reason, which is to advise clients strategically about what might be the best tool for the job when that question comes up. But in my experience, it is not necessary, you know, with whatever, 10 or 20 years of development experience, it is not necessary for me to do an entire paid client engagement with somebody using Angular to know what the pros and cons are. Uh, I would agree, yeah. Yeah, so I think that that kind of time spent is really good as long as you're charging a premium for access to that expertise after the fact and not just using it 
for your internal team to decide whether or not you should switch from Angular to Amber, Amber or something. So if you're selling that expertise, then that's super interesting. Well, I think it comes back to also the the model that we've taken because we are, you know, we started as a development shop and grew into sort of a software architecture shop that can, you know, do all parts of the equation for our clients. I think part of this is that we, we also uh, tend to give that information away. So when we first enter into a relationship with a client, the consulting or advice part of it seems to be part of the sales process. So we're, we're often sitting at a table espousing that expertise and information to our clients at no cost. And then our cost gets hopefully recovered by getting an engineering project to, to actually complete the project. Yeah, we actually did a show on this recently. Yeah, about all that, yeah. and done about it. And I, I think it's well worth a listen, especially considering, yeah, I mean, the, the real value is how do you solve the problem, not can you solve the problem? Yeah, so I'm a big fan of, of uh, in that situation it's always been my experience that the best way to build trust, which to me is the thing that you want to build if you want to charge premium rates, uh, they need to trust you. Um, the best way to build trust is to ask a bunch of really smart questions. And perhaps you offer some advice, but asking questions that make the client sit back and think, wow, we didn't even think of that, is probably the, my number one deal closing activity. And I'm sure you can, you know, you've got experience doing projects. I'm sure you could do this all day long with, with clients sitting in a room. But, but certainly, if I get the sense that there's something I could say that would basically pull a splinter out of somebody's eye, just be like, you guys are still in the decision-making phase and you're trying to make this thing work. Did you consider using this other thing? And if they say no, then I'm like, I'm like, oh, okay, this is probably not going to turn into anything. You know, and, and kind of not in the meeting there, but kind of be like, okay, you know, you, you should check that out. If you think it's going to meet your needs, then uh, go for it. And if not, give me a ring back. But you, that hardly ever happens. It usually always happens, you know, where they'll say, you know, call me up and they're like, oh, we're thing. We need a mobile responsive site and we have to rebuild from scratch. And I'll try and talk them out of hiring me by asking questions like, well, you, there's a bunch of responsive WordPress themes. That, why don't you just buy one of those? Or why don't you just wait and gather more information? Or why don't you just wait until your mobile traffic is 90% instead of 65%? Or, and they'll tell you all the reasons why they don't want to do that. Or they tried it and it won't work and they can't do it. But if you can get them to, to think by asking really insightful questions that indicate that you've been around and you know 10 times more about this than they do, then you, it's going to put yourself in a, it's going to put you in a very favorable position compared to a bunch of order takers from, you know, that, that don't know what the heck they're doing. And are probably overly confident and not just being like, yeah, yeah, we can do that. Yeah, we can do that. We can do that. Uh, someone who is kind of like, I love what Philip said earlier, parental supervision. Uh, <laughs> somebody who's kind of like, you know, whoa, 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 pump the brakes. Uh, you know, why do you guys want to do that? Is this really the best approach? If it is, great. But I just want to make sure you guys are asking the right questions. And you will set yourself apart wildly from a a risk standpoint, you will feel like the much safer bet and therefore you can justify a premium fee because you won't even be in the same ballpark with the other, you know, somebody who's just willing to, you know, I think at the beginning you said somebody's cousin who just learned WordPress. Sure. <laughs> well, and I also think just, just circling back on a couple of things you, you had mentioned earlier is like one of the things about uh, taking our development team and trying to get them to do more project management or get involved in the software architecture process, we, we kind of do that already now. 
But I also, just from my team's perspective and the type of people we tend to hire that bring a lot of passion and energy to these projects, I mean, these guys want to be knee-deep in code. And what we're trying to do is give them that opportunity to really um, spread their wings and, and develop great products for our clients. So I think it would be a tough shift because uh, we are sort of in this uh, pretty close to Silicon Valley here. So we've got a lot of competitive pressure from what we call over the hill. We're about 35 miles away from the center of Silicon Valley uh, over a mountain range by the beach. So, uh, you know, keeping our engineers excited and happy and keeping them on our team, they bring great value to the table. And I think by not having the ability to give them that work anymore, we potentially lose that uh, ability to keep them happy and keep them on board. I know. I mean, it, it was that same way for the manufacturing sector in the U.S. Yeah. It was not, not an easy transition. But I mean, I just I'm so glad we're having this conversation because I think every freelancer has to grapple with this question. It doesn't matter whether you're solo or have a shop with 10 people or 100 people. I mean, to me, it's the question of the next decade is how are you going to deal with commoditization? And if you love coding and that's what you want to do every day, is that even an opportunity anymore? Right. Is, that, is, that go, is that opportunity just going to sort of go away um, because it's just going to be too expensive to compete against? What? I just want to point out, I mean, you're making some assumptions about what your folks want, what you think is going to actually keep them around and keep them excited to come to work. And you may be right, but you may also find that there's some other aspect of what they do that they enjoy that you can kind of work from. So rather than make that assumption, you may also just have a conversation and say, look, we're, we're looking at some of these other options. These are some of the things that we think will help the business grow and help us move toward whatever goals we have and make sure that everybody understands where you're going and why you want to be there and then see what solutions they come up with as well. So some of these folks may actually say, yeah, I'd like to get better at architecture or I wouldn't mind spending half or more of my time consulting with clients as opposed to actually writing code. Or you may find that some of them are like, you know what, if you change it and I'm not writing code all the time, I'm out. But then you can start to make decisions based on that and say, this is what makes sense for us. This is what doesn't make sense for us, rather than just going on this train until the train runs out of fuel. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, Charles, to your point, I, I've, I've actually, we've had some of those conversations, probably not as in-depth as, as you're mentioning. And I would say that... Uh, we, we have lost some team members by shifting a bit, and some of the folks that we have on our team are, would definitely probably not be interested. I mean, most of these, most of these guys on our team are, are you know, in their 20s, and they're, they've been coding for four or five, six years. And so they, uh, they're kind of hitting their peak, and I think for them, they're, they're really starting to overcome these challenges and, and develop some truly amazing code in a, in a quick period of time. So... For, I, I think they, you know, they're going to want to keep exploring that. And from the conversations I've had lately, that does seem to be a little bit of a pressure internally for us. I remember when I started off as a developer, uh, I was working for HP. Um, everyone sort of pointed out that at a certain point, if you're working in a big company, or even I guess if you're working in a smaller, medium-sized company, over time, you know, you're not going to be able to continue being a developer. You're going to have to move up into management. And so a lot of companies came up with uh, these technical tracks where you can become an architect, you can become a chief technologist. And it was clear that not everyone can move into this, but that a lot of people could, or at least it was non-zero. And this was to sort of help, help the developers realize they had a future in doing coding. And I think many people moved into freelancing or consulting uh, because they said, well, this is a chance for me to do that technical thing for a much longer time. 
and I think it does give you a little more of a cushion, and you can do it for a longer time, and you'll stay sort of more technical than you might have been able to in a bigger company. But I, I think part of the the issue here is that as you become more senior, it's just sort of almost inherent in the computer industry that you're going to price yourself out of doing day-to-day development. And so you've got to find something that involves the development, includes it, requires your knowledge of it, but allows you to build on that experience to give more value and thus charge more as well. And that's probably why we find ourselves being somewhat altruistic about giving away advice and, and trying to uh, do a lot of stuff for our clients that we don't charge them for because we're trying to stay relevant in that area, but we are probably have reached that seniority point where we're, we're pricing ourselves out and then we're defeating ourselves by not charging a rate for that time that we're going you know, into the red zone, per se, to help our clients achieve their goals. Totally. Which, yeah. Which is probably probably not the best business decision, but that's the that's the business entrepreneur fighting the curious software engineer um, and butting heads with that on a regular basis. So, and and I think that's I mean I don't, I'm not sure if all freelancers have that same issue, but I love that quote that you guys shared in that other show, which I'll just repeat again, which was you know resisting that draw of the keyboard, and that's really tough. And I think someone on your show mentioned that. You know, it's it's something that you you definitely can't do. And if you are going to go back to the keyboard, then then you can't really you know manage and run a company at that point. Yeah, it sounds like what something Marcus Blankenship would say. And I, I totally get it. I mean, that's what got me interested in technology in the first place. Was it was this sort of this way to affect the world, just like through this machine, right? It it kind of spoke to the instinct to want to build things and create things. And I mean, I trust me, I get it. I just don't know how you can face down the sort of commoditization locomotive that's coming down the tunnel without changing something. And and the easiest thing to do is is just find new ways to, or maybe it's not the easiest way, <laughs> but you know, finding new ways to create value is is the solution. I guess how that exactly looks is is going to be different for each person, somewhat different. Well, well, how about this? I mean, I know there are not a lot, maybe, but a few consulting companies and even like product companies where. They spend a lot of time working on an open source project, right? And, or they'll even create and maintain an open source project. And they then become the world experts in that and can charge a premium because they are the experts. And so they're contributing open source and they're helping the world and they're getting to sort of, you know, they're getting their technical jollies out of it, as it were, and they're learning a lot. But they're also using that technology to solve serious problems and they are turned to and able to charge a premium as a result. Yeah, that's almost a variation of building a startup except the product is free, you're just charging for support services. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right. That is an interesting way to, to you know, face down the locomotive coming down the tunnel. Yep. Yeah. I mean, even if you're, even if you don't create it, like if you're a Rails core committer, you've got plenty, you can make money. Or a Shopify expert, you can make money. But at that point, you are very, very, very specialized, much more specialized than it sounds like, uh, than it sounds like Gary's firm is and much more specialized than the vast majority of people out there are. Well, we, and we tried to diversify a little bit because of this. We saw this come down the road, which was, you know, we were always interested in, in seeing how far our team could get us by developing our own software. So we was, we started a startup about 18 months ago. We got some funding and started building that incubating internally. It's still going on. Um, just to allow us to sort of take our what we consider our amazing team and really flex our wings and build something great. And then on top of that, during that process, we felt like we, we had so much more time that we decided to build a nonprofit, which we were also coding for as well. So we've been developing sort of our own projects to sort of give ourselves the chance to go in that direction. But, you know, you know client work is still what pays the bills. 
This reminds me of of a like my wife is super into knitting. Like she freaking loves it, and she sounds like a developer when she talks about it because I don't understand a damn thing she says. <laughs> I mean, it is super technical. It is super technical, and she loves it. She just like spend hours a day knitting it, what listening to knitting podcasts, the whole thing, just like just like a developer. But imagine if she used to make tons of money doing it, and then the money went away. Like that's where I feel software developers are now. There's tons of ways you can do it for fun, just for fun, like you're knitting. You know, you you could create an open source project. You could create a side project. You could create a product product. You could create internal software for your business. But to expect people to pay for your knitting, like how awesome you're like, look at these needles I chose. You know, like no one, very, not no one, very few customers are going to care what needles you chose. They just want to know if the sweater is going to keep them warm. So could it have a run down the back? Yeah, maybe it's probably good enough for a lot of people. And it just, it reminds me of that. The sort of tension between being a craftsman and a business person is the source of a lot. I think a lot of sort of cognitive dissonance that we're hearing here and basically all the time. So going back to my question earlier, I mean, do you, do you guys, um, do you feel that the, uh, the American freelancer in, in software development is, is something that will be a thing of the past of the future. I yes. think they'll they'll have to change how they do things. I think they have to. I think the value that comes from technical knowledge that anybody in the world can develop and sell that value is going to go down, and so they'll have to. You have to figure out new ways to create value, and I mean, I guess that's my sort of bottom line take on it. One thing that I'm wondering, though, is there some kind of limitation to offshoring? For example, let's say that we're offshoring to South America or certain Asian companies. You know, what if they get to the point where we are now? Where do they offshore to? Well, it's the, the, the bottom line is the costs. So as the value approaches zero, your costs start to matter. And if, mm. I mean, if the U.S. economy collapses, we'll be fine. <laughs> because, <laughs> because then we can charge nothing pennies on the dollar. But the problem is that our costs are higher, like our living is. So, I mean, somebody said Oklahoma earlier, like that's not a joke. Like I have, you know, I have friends that live in Kentucky or wherever, you know, that have a very much lower cost of living and it gives them so much more flexibility because paying a premium for real estate is no longer precondition for a high salary. Or even a, you know, a, a middle level salary, whatever that's called. I, I happen to live in a fairly expensive place, not, not crazy expensive place in the US, but my family's here and I'm kind of like, grew up here, I'm kind of like, you know, and it occurs to me all the time how great it would be in many ways if I could move to Poland or, or it's just some place that, or Croatia, which I kind of like actually, but I just, my family's not all going to come with me and it would just be really tough personally. But man, I would never have to work. <laughs> None of my work is local. Uh, Gary, how much of your work is local? Very little. In fact, yeah, like uh, I'm from South Africa originally. So I've, I've thought about um, potentially taking things over there because they're about four years behind us. So I, I would come in being a few light years ahead of them and it's pretty decent life over there. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the interesting things is I actually read this amazing article recently, which was somebody was asking the question about, can you reproduce Silicon Valley? 
um, in, in other places. And there's there's lots of cities trying to do that right now. And I think that the answer is uh, almost, I mean, I think it's very difficult. And I think there's a lot of reasons why. I think Silicon Valley was grew over many, many years. And what we've resulted in is, is this huge explosion of, of technology and, and developers and meetups on a regular basis. And I think this, I've seen a lot of this happening maybe in Utah as well, but it's, it's very difficult to recreate that. And, and it, there is a driving competitive force here that gets everybody to sort of up their game on a you know, regular basis and keep in the mix. And I guess my question is, because it, it is hard to replicate that, there, there must be some value in, in the, the people that are here and the people that bring that passion and energy to these companies and work in that community um, that, that can't be replicated overseas. It's not as easy to go to Crochet or Poland and, and extract sort of the culture of Silicon Valley out of those people that you might get from developers over here. Is that, an, is that not an innate value to, to what a, a team brings to the table? I was going to mention earlier that, you know, even though, you know, manufacturing has largely migrated out of the U.S. to cheaper areas, there's still plenty of stuff that's made in the U.S. and it's sold at a premium rate. So, Tesla, for example, right? Yeah, there, there's always going to be at the top end of any market, there's always room for an, an incredibly expensive thing, you know, if it's valued. I certainly didn't mean to say that, well, forget about it. If you're a freelancer in the U.S. <laughs> 10 years from now, you're going to be unemployed. It's not that at all. It's just you'll probably have to change and find a way to get to the top end of whatever market niche you want to be in. Well, yeah, I think you need to be the luxury goods of your area. And I think Ruben's comments are uh, pretty common. I mean, most most of us that started out anywhere – Got that same comment from from whoever our boss was at the time saying, you know, you can only be a software developer for so long. Eventually, you'll reach management and you'll take this track or that track. And uh, some, some of us reach, reach that point and go into management um, and, and, do, and do whatever it takes to be in management. Some people love managing. Some people don't. I personally do it out of necessity. I mean, I'd much rather, you know, unfortunately admit that I would rather be dealing with computers than people sometimes. So um, so it's a, it's a breath of fresh air when I get to do stuff like that. But as Jonathan said, I do it on the side and I do it for fun and, and it does keep me informed about things. And I would say, you know, 90% of my programming happens outside of work hours at this point. I know we have to get to picks, but there's one thing there that I want to clarify, which is that management's not the only non-code option. There's plenty of other advice giving you can give and get paid a king's ransom for that is not managing people. So I guess wanted to put that out there just to point out that it's not the only option. What are some of the other options? Are you talking about like teaching or, or going to events and speaking engagements and things like that? Uh, speaking engagements is a big one for me, but also the matchmaking stuff and vetting things. You know, it could be reviewing RFPs before they go out. It could be reviewing quotes when they come back in. It could be making connections for people. Yeah, all, all those sorts of things. I do like the idea of helping a client find the right team. So uh, sort of reviewing RFPs before they go out and helping them ask the right questions so that they get the right team and they find all the right people that they need to do the project. That would sort of solve two problems in that we get to bring our expertise to the table. and We also get to help educate a client or make sure they're asking the right questions before they hire that team, which hopefully will avoid them running into a failure situation. It's a serious conversation. You know, it really it really has real implications for the future of a lot of people's livelihood. Someone said to me years ago that um, so the difference between being a, a you know, self-employed 
and working for a company, among other things, is when you're self-employed, you're exposed to the business side of things. Like you're exposed to the real world. Whereas if you're just if you're a developer working for a company, you're obviously going to hear stuff about what's going on with the, the the business. But your company is responsible for keeping track of trends and responding in kind. And I think what we're all saying here is there are trends, you know, globalization, technology changes, and commoditization, all this stuff that are affecting all businesses around the world. And when you are the business or when you're running the business, you then have to be thinking not just what am I doing for work right now, but what am I going to be doing for work a year, five, or ten from now and position yourself and adjust your trajectory accordingly. And that can be very uh, tension-inducing. I think we were – and I was also sold when I first started my business was, you know, the dream that I had was that I'd be able to, like, employ myself doing coding forever. And quickly, within probably a year or two, I found myself managing a team of people, and uh, the coding slowly drifted away. So I think just even being a freelancer that wants to grow into a firm and not be a solo guy or or gal, um, obviously, you're going to run into that, that same problem. And I give you huge credit for pulling it off because I did it for a while. And I would not go back to it. It's really it's it's very difficult. Yep, absolutely. So good for you. Thanks. All right. Well, I'm going to push us into picks. Reuben, do you want to start us with picks? Uh, sure. So I'll start with a pick from either one week ago or 51 weeks from now. Uh, I was last week as we record this at Brennan Dunn's W Freelancing Conference in Europe, and it was extraordinary, really extraordinary, fun, interesting, full of interesting ideas. So, um, you can mark your calendar now because one of the participants in the conference already reserved the place and sent Brennan an invite to his own conference for next year. So, so it was really quite good at a fancy Japanese-style spa in Stockholm. So definitely cool, definitely worth uh, putting on your calendar. And because of the flights involved, I was reminded that one of my favorite apps that I don't think I've ever mentioned here as a pick is FlightAware. So um, when we were not getting online for our flight – and they didn't tell us that the airport was going on. I went on flight aware and found out, okay, we were 20 minutes delayed. And that explained everything. So definitely worth using it on the web and on an app. All right. Jonathan, what are your picks? I got a couple picks this week. The first one is a book by Seth Godin called The Icarus Deception. And I am not always the biggest Seth Godin fan. I think he's a little hit or miss and kind of adheres to his own narrative a little much uh, at times. So, and I, I only say that because if you are not the hugest Seth Godin fan, I think that uh, you should suspend your disbelief and read The Icarus Deception, which if I was going to summarize in uh, one sentence is that there's a difference between your safety zone, what's actually safe for you, and your comfort zone which is where you're comfortable. And over the last, say, 10, 20 years, the safety zone for people has moved out from under their comfort zone. The things that they do to keep them comfortable are no longer safe as they once were. Very interesting and I think relevant to the conversation, which is why I brought it up. Uh, another thing which is relevant to the conversation is uh, a webinar I did a little while back in February about how to increase your income without hiring employees, which might be interesting to Gary or other people in Gary's situation about things that you can do to kind of sell your head instead of your hands, which is, you know, selling your hands is usually what you're doing when you hire employees is multiplying your hands. So uh, that might be of interest to people. And then the last thing is a service that a friend of mine has created a, a while back, uh, Jeremy Keith, well-known web developer, and he has this 
sort of podcasting related service called Huffduffer, weird name. Uh, but you know, podcast listeners might be interested in it. You can go to Huffduffer and kind of paste links to audio files into it and create your own custom podcast feeds without any shenanigans. This is very, very easy to create your own custom podcast. So, uh, I've actually collected a bunch of podcasts that I've been interviewed on and created my own like huffed up or podcast feed, but you can, uh, use it for whatever you want. It's really, it's really crazy simple. So people might dig that if they're uh, big podcast fans. So that's it for me. All right, Philip, what are your picks? Well, speaking of commoditization, Amazon produces a very nice, uh, inexpensive line of products, Amazon basics. And I've recently tried their high capacity rechargeable batteries and this like bulk pack of microfiber cleaning cloths. And I gotta say for the, for the price, they're pretty, pretty sweet. So my first pick is the Amazon basics line of stuff. And then the second pick, I occasionally run a boot camp that's designed to help solo uh, developers and very small shops kind of plan their way out of uh, a commodified market position. I call it the commodity prison break workshop. And if that's something of interest, you can find out more at commodityprisonbreak.com. And my Hello. third pick is hope. If you're in a commodified position, just know you can get out of it with some work and planning. So don't lose hope. I love the idea of a prison break. It's <laughs> <laughs> just awesome. I'm going to throw a couple of picks out there. The first one is a tool that I use. It's a plugin for Chrome, the web browser. And what it does is it actually closes, closes down tabs when you're not using them. So you don't have a zillion tabs open. It's called Tab Wrangler. And uh, you can actually whitelist tabs so that it doesn't close them. So, for example, it won't close Gmail. And that way, you know, I can just hop onto my email whenever I want. I probably should change that, but I haven't. And then I have a few others that I've, you know, I've whitelisted. So I'm really, I really like it, and it's really handy. Another pick that I'm going to throw out there is Privacy Badger. And that's built by the Electronic Freedom Foundation. And uh, it just blocks everything, which is really awesome. And so if you're looking for kind of an ad blocker, cookie blocker, privacy plugin, uh, it's a good one to go with. And, uh, yeah, so... Those are my picks. Gary, do you have some picks for us? I do. Um, yeah, I was actually on, <clears throat> since we're talking about Google Chrome, I, I use this uh, service that I've become sort of attached to called Session Buddy, um, which allows you, I obviously uh, have Google Chrome open with too many tabs at a time and lose track and uh, often have to close down and restart my, my system after a while. So I found Session Buddy, which allows me to um, actually grab all of my uh, tabs that are open and save them in a session, recall that at a later date, um, which has been absolutely amazing. My second pick is uh, there's a new show I just saw on CNN called I Am Rebel, and there was a great episode with Kevin Mitnick on there yesterday for any of the hackers out there. And my third pick is uh, I attended a uh, incubation program a few years ago called the Founder Institute um, in Silicon Valley, and it was great. Um, it really helped us get started building some products and giving us the energy to build products internally and, and get, get a startup going within our company, which sort of diversified our, our reliance on the clients that, that are seeing commodity in the market today. Cool. Well, if people want to find out more about you or your company or hire you, where do they go? Um, they can go to www.jabico.com. That's J-A-B-I-C-O.com. And they can email me at gherman at jabico.com. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming and thanks for asking the questions. I think this was a really, really 
interesting conversation about some of these issues that I think a lot of freelancers are running into and I think are going to become more common things that people are going to have to deal with. Thanks. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more. <laughs>